I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, my guest is Megan Hatcher-Mays. Megan is the Director of Democracy Policy at Indivisible, and she's here to discuss the Supreme Court, and there's a lot to discuss. Megan gives an analysis of all the decisions made over the past several weeks, including the Dobbs decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. We also talk about some of the cases that are forthcoming, and it's not great. You will definitely learn something in this episode. I certainly did. And Megan does leave us with a glimmer of hope at the end. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Megan Hatcher-Mays. Well, Megan, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. And, you know, what a time to be alive. And I don't mean that in, in a good way. <laughs> yeah, it's been, I think um, I, I read a joke tweet that was like, it was 50 years of history over the course of seven days. It's, um, it's a lot to go through all at once, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm glad I'm alive. Yeah. However, you know, and I don't want to go back to like 1963 either. But it's like, you know, Jesus. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I'm, you know, I'm still reeling, obviously, from the mm-hmm. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe. And I think everyone is, obviously. There's this collective tension online, offline. Other countries are condemning mm-hmm. this decision, right? This is not how, and this is the phrase that keeps going through my head. And it's kind of naive, but this is not how we were meant to live, right? That's just what keeps going through my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like it feels like this because this is true. You know, this court does want to kind of pull us kicking and screaming back to the 18th century. They've said so over the course of several different decisions that came out at the end of term, not just in the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe, but in the gun case about concealed carry. There's a lot of talk about what somebody would have believed to be a constitutional right in the 1600s or the 1700s or the 1800s. And here we all are in 2022 thinking, I don't want to go back there. You know, I I wasn't considered a full person in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, you know, Uh, so I'd rather not go back there. But this court, that's where they're taking us. It's it's messed up. It's really messed up. You know, I think we're in a situation where we thought, obviously, Donald Trump's election questioned a lot of our assumptions about how successfully our democracy was actually working. But at the very least, I think we felt that surely the will of the majority would prevail. And what the Supreme Court is saying is it it doesn't. Um, They overturned the Democratic will in multiple cases over the course of this term. And now we're stuck kind of possibly living like peasants in you know the Thomas Jefferson era so uh, so I agree with you we're not we're, we're not meant to live like this we are supposed to this country was meant to grow and modernize and be a democracy and that our democracy took a lot of body blows from the Supreme Court at the end of this term yeah I mean you know we can review all of the you know ass backwards sorry I, I usually don't use words like that on my podcast but it called for these ass backwards decisions from the Supreme Court over the past several weeks, we can review those. But something you said about the Supreme Court and where we are right now, I think Hillary Clinton warned us about mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. And I think a lot of people warned us about the Supreme Court and what would happen under Trump. And I think a lot of people just kind of, you know, dismissed that as being, you know, hysteria, which isn't surprising. She did. Um, <laughs> and I think, <laughs> uh, you know, I think for a long time, uh, Democrats, liberals, progressive voters didn't view the court in the same way that our counterpoints on the right have viewed the court. We've always thought of the court as being the institution that expands access to constitutional rights. And that was true Um, in the court's decision in Roe v. Wade. That was true in the court's decision in Brown v. Board, that these are situations where they are expanding and granting 
access to constitutional rights for more people. The rights project for the court is to restrict constitutional rights as much as possible for people that they don't think deserve them. So that would be women, people who can get pregnant, people of color. Um, and that's what we've seen the conservatives do over the course of years, starting with you know, Bush v. Gore, frankly. So, you know, Hillary Clinton tried to say, you know, there was an open seat at the time. There was an open Supreme Court seat at the time that would have that determined control of, of the court um, after Scalia passed away back then. Um, and she lost. And that seat was filled with Neil Gorsuch, who has very happily, for the most part, gone along with the conservatives in restricting constitutional rights for, for people. You know, back in 2017, when, or 2018, when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated, a lot of people, myself included, and probably you, were really sounding the alarm, like this is going to be the death knell. Like, you know, this is the death knell, this is going to be the end of Roe. And a lot of very smart guy pundits were saying, oh, you're overreacting, Roe's not going anywhere, this isn't The Handmaid's Tale. And, you know, four years later, here we are. So this is not a situation where I feel particularly good about saying I told you so. But it's really important for people to understand that the, what, the role that the court plays in our lives and the role that they are now playing in our lives is acting as a, an extension of the Republican Party. And so that's, that's the danger that we're in. Yeah. You know, so can we go over a few of the things that happened or the cases mm -hmm. that went through the Supreme Court? The one about concealed carry. The Supreme Court, you know, they struck down a New York handgun licensing law. What are the details of that one? Yeah, so that was a, that's exactly right, where New York had a law that required you to show cause or reason why you needed to conceal carry, which was a relatively high bar, because the goal is to have fewer guns on the street, given the, you know, how this country works. <laughs> we have a lot right, of guns right. in this country. And uh, it was challenged by a local gun rights group um, who said that it um, unconstitutionally you know, derived law-abiding gun owners of their Second Amendment rights. Uh, the Supreme Court adopted that. Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion. He relied on a very warped reading of history to suggest that, um, you know, if you wanted to pass any sort of gun safety regulation, you needed to find a historical analog for that regulation. So in other words, if you want to pass a gun safety law in the year of 2022, you need to find a version of that law that existed at the time that the Second Amendment was ratified, 200-something okay. years ago, 200-plus uh, years ago. And he also said, and I think this is even more egregious, he also said uh, when the courts decide whether or not a gun safety law is constitutional or not, they cannot take into account whether or not it protects people. Like, does it reduce gun violence? That cannot be part of the analysis, which is unhinged. That's an unhinged thing to say. So not only do we have to abide by whatever the gun safety laws were in the 1700s, we can also not take into account the gun violence epidemic when we want to address it. Not only, not only that, <laughs> not, it gets worse, not only that, but as we all know, guns have changed significantly from the signing of the constitution to today. They did not have AR-15s back then. They did not have these like military grade weapons in the streets back then. They had like muskets, basically. Uh, Clarence Thomas says, it doesn't matter how modern or new, it doesn't matter whether or not the weapon that you want to ban or regulate existed back then or not. You still have to follow the same rules. So the founders would have their minds blown if they knew these types of weapons were readily available and proliferating on the streets. But 
given that they didn't exist at the time, you're probably not going to find a historical analog <laughs> for a gun safety regulation for an AR-15. So uh, all that to say, I know this is very long-winded, but all that to say, the Supreme Court has effectively said, we don't care about the gun violence epidemic in this country. It is better to have as many guns on the street as possible. It doesn't matter whether it uh, saves lives to get them off the street or not. We are going by 1700s rules. And so that's where we're at on guns. It's very scary. Very, very scary. Yeah, it's very scary. Uh, and thank you for laying it out in detail. You know, that was that decision came like a, six weeks after mm -hmm. the mass shooting in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just weeks after Uvalde and now the, the mass shooting over the holiday weekend. I mean, it's, 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 it's wild. It's just insane. I don't understand. It, it, does this have ramifications beyond New York? Yes, Yes, it does. It affects everyone. So if you live in a state that has relatively strict gun safety laws, so I live in D.C., it's very difficult to buy a gun here, let alone conceal carry one or open carry one, or it's very difficult to even get one to have in your house, which is good, in my opinion. Um, those laws are at risk. Those laws can be challenged and probably will be if you live in a state like Washington State or California that has relatively strict, like a blue state that has pretty strict gun safety laws. Very likely all of those will be challenged by the NRA or a local gun, you know, like a local NRA chapter or something will very likely challenge those laws. And I think that courts, given that this, this new opinion will have a difficult time upholding any of them, unless you can find a historical analog for the gun safety laws that we've passed. Now, this question isn't necessarily directly related to the Supreme Court, but regarding blue states versus red states, right? I mean, in, in, in the scope of things, how much does it matter given that this is a national problem? Because you can go to a red state, you know, with their lax gun laws and, and you know, buy a gun and come to a blue state, right? I mean, the, the Buffalo shooter traveled. He was, you know, he traveled across New York State, but he still traveled. There's nothing barring someone from getting a gun somewhere where they can easily get a gun and go somewhere else and, you know, commit a heinous crime. That's right. Um, you know, again, I live in D.C. Almost all of the guns that the police confiscate here that are used in crimes in the district come from Virginia. So <laughs> almost wow. all of them. So um, that, that's very true that um, it is a federal problem that requires a federal solution. But again, this Supreme Court case ha has hamstrung the Congress even um, from from passing federal gun safety laws. I mean, Congress wasn't doing a great job at this anyways. But there is a bipartisan bill that's negotiation happening over a gun safety bill. Some of the stuff that's in there, I, I think, might be at risk given the Supreme Court decision. There is no historical analog, say, for red flag requirements that, you know, people can put a red flag and say, oh, this person shouldn't buy a gun. There's no historical analog for preventing domestic abusers from buying weapons, which is also in this bill. So Congress now is going to have a more difficult time, even more difficult time passing gun safety laws, given this new Supreme Court opinion. So it applies to the states and to Congress as well. But you're right that you really can't solve the problem unless you're dealing with guns everywhere, especially if you live on the on the border of a state that has really lax gun laws. You know? Yeah. You know, and speaking of Congress, they literally just passed, you know, some, some new gun laws following the Uvalde shooting. Right. Mm -hmm. And there were people saying this is meaningful to some extent. And then, you know, you had the, the shooting over the weekend, over the holiday weekend in Illinois. I don't know. That says a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, you know, it, I think that bill was a really good start. But the amount of deaths that we've had in this country since the assault weapons ban lapsed really, I think, tells you what the problem is here. It's, it's 
the amount of guns and it's the type of guns. I mean, I think I'm sort of loath to do this, but if you compare it to some of the shootings that we've seen overseas, you know, there was a mass shooting at a mall in Copenhagen. The person who did it used a hunting rifle and um, the it, that makes a difference. You can save people's lives if they're not using a semi-automatic weapon. Um, the fact that we have those here just increases the death tolls to such an appalling amount. That is part of it too. So I think that, again, I think this bill goes is a good start, but there's a lot, a lot to do as we've seen, because, you know, even after President Biden signed it into law, we still had a grievous mass shooting at a 4th of July parade just a few days later. Right. I mean, shouldn't, I, I don't want to negate the fact that it was a really good start. It was a good start, but mm -hmm. it's a start, obviously, right? It, yeah. it will save lives, but we still have an awful, awful gun problem in this country. Mm -hmm. And speaking of other countries, you know, I've done many, many episodes on how to curb our gun violence problem here in, you know, in America. And the thing that, you know, my guests keep coming back to is the ubiquity of guns and the easy access to guns in America. That's the thing that differentiates us from other countries is that we have so many freaking guns are everywhere. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, practically, I wouldn't be surprised in 10 years if you can get them from a vending machine. Yeah. Well, we already have a situation now where you can like download the blueprint to make one. If you have a 3d printer, I mean, that's pretty close to just being able to get one out of a vending machine. It's terrifying. And they'll give you one. There's some States or some banks that will give you a free gun. If you open a checking account, like that's how wild this <laughs> this country yeah. is about guns it's it's very scary you know very scary and then even scarier if you can imagine that and maybe i don't know which is scarier but there was a decision that the supreme court made regarding the epa right mm -hmm. and their ability to um regulate power plant emissions what was that about ah yes <laughs> <laughs> another bad one yeah uh, yeah so that case was about so here we have this agency called the environmental protection agency and you would think given the name that they would have the authority to protect the environment uh but the supreme court decided at the end of term that their ability to protect the environment is pretty significantly limited actually um, they severely curbed the epa's authority to regulate clean air carbon emissions um obviously a devastating opinion given the climate crisis that we are in currently and the worsening crisis that is on the horizon for all of us. It's very bad. It opens the door for polluters to emit more pollution. And it also raises some questions about agency authority for other agencies. So if the EPA isn't allowed to protect the environment, then is the Department of Labor allowed to protect workers' rights? You know, it sort of opens the door for a lot of challenges to how the federal government as a whole operates. So that's what makes it really scary. You know, it just, uh, it, it doesn't end there. You know, they have accepted another case that they're going to hear next term about the EPA's ability to administer the Clean Water Act. So they've already gone after the Clean Air Act. Now they're going to go after the Clean Water Act. I don't think the outcome of that case will be good. But um, that's what we're dealing with with this court. They favor the wealthy and corporations, and that's that's what they did in this case as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason to think that it would be good. No, like there's nothing to. <laughs> there's no reason to think that any of their decisions are going to be good. <laughs> right. I mean, are they trying to destroy the EPA? I mean, yes. Okay. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, so the conservative project to take over the courts is about a lot of things. It's about overturning Roe, which they did. It's about 
expanding the Second Amendment rights, uh, not so much because I think they care really about um, the rights of gun owners. It's really about ensuring that gun companies can sell as many guns as possible. You really have to believe that somehow the gun company's profits are at risk to read the Second Amendment in the way that Clarence Thomas <laughs> has done. So that's what they're about. They're about restricting rights for people as much as possible and expanding rights for corporations as much as possible. That's like the guiding principle of the conservative project to take over the courts. And that's what this court is doing. And um, to the extent that you can minimize the government's ability to provide basic services for people, the more opportunities there are for the private sector to step in and provide those services instead. That's what this is about, um, is maximizing corporate profits maximizing opportunities for corporations to make money off of government services that should be no cost to the taxpayer. And that's what they're starting to do with, um, they already kind of did it earlier in the term. There was a case about the mask mandate that was, was a rule that was issued by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, you do not have the authority to administer safety and health while people are at their occupations. <laughs> okay. So they got rid of that. And so, you know, just, it, you can let your mind wander, you know, health and human services, probably at risk, the postal service, anything that you kind of rely on, they're coming after. And it starts with the EPA, but it definitely doesn't end there. Yeah. I mean, you know, is the FDA at risk? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I'm like, I'm very serious. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think that's exactly right. I think, um, this is just, this court represents an ideology that is hostile to government. And so anything that they can do to make the government less reliable, maximize corporate profits, that's what they're going to do. So it's definitely not limited to, to clean air and clean water. That's bad enough. But I think that many other federal agencies are at risk from this court, not just, not just the EPA. Yeah, the irony are, you know, they are government. They're the judicial government. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I don't think they think of themselves that way, but that is true if they are. <laughs> so, so regarding upcoming cases, there are a few that are worrying. And there was one or two rather regarding affirmative action. Um, mm -hmm. Are you familiar with those? Um, students for yeah. fair admissions? Yeah. Yes. Uh, those are some, uh, some scary cases. There's one involving um, Harvard, I think about uh, the use of race conscious admissions. In other words, that you, know, you acknowledge that there are differences in how people are treated based on their race. Um, I think this court has been angling to strike down the use of race conscious admissions and strike down the ability of states to implement affirmative action rules. The, there have been some really close calls in the past when Justice Kennedy, who was a little bit more moderate, was a swing vote, he would vote in favor of affirmative action policies. So there were some close calls back in, uh, you know, 2013, 2014, about a white woman who was denied admission to UT Austin. And she argued it was because she was white. So, so far, affirmative action is allowed, um, except for K through 12 admissions, thanks to a case called Parents Involved, which is based out of Seattle, by the way. Yeah. Um, but you can use it in higher education. Kennedy's gone now, and we have a 6-3 conservative majority. So in the past, John Roberts has written that the way, the Chief Justice John Roberts has written that the way to end uh, discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, he wrote that in an opinion. Um, he didn't have the votes to make that 
like the actual law, but I think he does now. So I think that it's not looking good for the use of affirmative action in higher education, given these upcoming cases. Uh, An additional complication is that because one of them involves Harvard, um, the new justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, said in her confirmation hearings that she would likely recuse herself because she's um, on the board of trustees or some, some position like that at Harvard. So only eight of the justices will ultimately be part of the deliberations and decision making for that case. So very likely that this is the end of affirmative action uh, as well. For for university admissions, right? For university admissions, yeah. But it could have repercussions beyond that, I would imagine. Yeah, to the extent that, you know, there are, you know, diversity programs in hiring and things like that, those those sorts of things might be next on the chopping block. This sort of very retrograde view of race that if everyone, it's sort of, I I don't know, I think that the conservatives analysis here is very close to, I don't see race, I'm colorblind, like that sort of thing, very uh, elementary view of how race functions in this country. And they're about to make that all of our problem. (laughs) So it's not looking good. Yeah, but at least when people say that, you know, as flawed as it is, they're at least being sincere um again as flawed as that that take is um i don't think the supreme court sincerely believes no. yeah i mean this is this no, is clearly bad people. right exactly <laughs> yeah that's right you know but there are two cases right there's um students for fair admissions versus the university of north carolina and then there's one against you know for harvard right so there's two mm-hmm. cases i'm not really sure how that works like which one they will take or which one they'll pick up and if it matters, and, and you know, even if Katanji Brown Jackson, Justice Jackson, doesn't get to participate in the one against Harvard or the you know the Harvard case, with the the way that the court is balanced, it wouldn't really make that much of a difference aside from her not being able to write a dissent. That's right. Given that the court is a six three, it, she probably wouldn't be the swing vote in a case like that, and she won't be able to write a dissent or otherwise kind of participate in the deliberations or the decision making, which is unfortunate because I you know I think her perspective and her voice would be critical on a case like this. Um, but she probably wouldn't be the swing vote. That's that's true. Um, it could be that they combine these two cases and hear them both together instead of hearing them separately. A lot of times they do that if the issue, if the core issue in two different cases are basically the same. That actually did happen in the parents involved case. There was, they combined a complaint from Seattle with a complaint from a Southern state and combined them together and, issued rulings in both cases at once. So that that could happen with the UNC um, and Harvard case. So what is um, Moore versus Harper? That I think is involving the ability to nullify election results from the judicial branch? Yeah, so this one is a doozy. So the <laughs> this Moore v. Harper is a case uh, about what's called the independent state legislature theory, which is a theory uh, based on a completely bad faith reading of the Constitution that asserts that the only body in a state that has the authority to make decisions about how a state administers their elections is the state legislature. Uh, In other words, even if a state legislature passed a series of the most racist, voter suppressive law you've ever seen in your life, um, the state courts would not have the ability to hear challenges to 
those laws because only the state legislature would have the power to determine the state's election processes. So um, you can imagine how that might go in a state that has a severely gerrymandered state legislature that gives a lot of power, not just to Republicans, but to like MAGA loyalists who would be in control of congressional maps, state legislature maps, election processes, polling places, voter registration. If state courts can't hear those case challenges to those types of laws and can't weigh in to say that these are blatantly unconstitutional, then they will go into effect. And some of those laws might include who has the power to determine the state's electors, how the electors are awarded, which obviously has implications for the presidential election if a state passes some sort of law that says only the state legislature gets to determine how the electoral votes are assigned. Um, they could just hand over the state's electoral votes to, say, Donald Trump, even if Donald Trump lost the popular vote in that case. So it's not hyperbole to say that our literal democracy is on the line with this case. Right. He wouldn't need Mike Pence in that case. Right? He would <laughs> not need Mike Pence. He would only need Brian Kemp, basically. So like, just to replay it, say, if, this, if the Supreme Court adopts this theory, let's say they adopted it back in 2019. That means that in 2020, even though Joe Biden won the popular vote in Georgia, in a situation where the independent state legislature doctrine was real and existed, Georgia could have passed a law that says only the state legislature gets to designate who gets our electoral votes. They could have just given the electoral votes to Trump instead. Like, and no state court would have had the ability to hear it if this doctrine had existed at the time. Like, that's what we're dealing with. So, he, no, he would not need Mike Pence. He would only need friendly state legislatures in like two or three swing states yeah. which he has he has that hmm. so oh geez sorry <laughs> no i'm sorry i'm sorry to i'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news this is very scary and uh you know we know for sure that there are four justices currently on the supreme court who think that this theory is valid yeah. um, and they have written that so basically the swing vote in this case is amy coney barrett that's what we're dealing with it's it's very frightening very terrifying yeah, I, I literally be briefly became faint. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's correct. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's the correct reaction. Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about our conversation and what I would talk to you about last night. I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, you know, over the past several decades since the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, the VRA, the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and Roe in 1973, you know, this country still is very problematic even you know aside from the cases that have come out of the supreme court over the past several weeks over the past decades we've slowly been going in a direction away from conservatism right you know with all of these cases you know the mm -hmm. civil rights act and vra it's very very slow the progress is very slow but we have been going in that direction the supreme court like we talked about in the beginning they've just undone so much of that mm -hmm. progress just in one fell swoop right and it feels like they are behaving like a legislative branch rather than a judicial branch. And I don't know how that happens. And I don't know if you can explain that to me and untangle it for mm -hmm. me. You know, where do the cases come from? Like who is shaping the country and bringing these cases? It just seems so coordinated. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. It's, it's not a conspiracy theory. That's definitely what's happening. 
um, that there are conservative legal groups who bring these cases or some higher profile ones, um, you know, like the Alliance Defending Freedom, those types of groups that bring quote unquote religious freedom cases that, you know, make it easier for companies to just discriminate against people based on their religion. You know, those types of groups, they work in tandem with groups like the Federalist Society, other conservative legal groups. A lot of those groups file what are called amicus briefs with the court, so friend of the court briefs where they support a certain litigant's position. Um, And they're all interconnected. Those same groups also spend money and support the nomination and confirmation of the conservative justices. So there's some real big questions about conflicts of interest. The same people who are paying for ads to support Supreme Court justices are the same people that are arguing cases in front of those justices. Definitely raises some questions about conflicts of interest. But this has basically been a 50-year project to create this system where there's not only like a pretty robust conservative legal um, environment where even the most untethered from the constitutional types of arguments are made, they, the Supreme Court will still entertain them. That's, I think, kind of the scariest thing is that they're, they're helping shape the docket that the Supreme Court will ultimately hear. And that's how we kind of get farther and farther away from the majority will because they're adopting more and more untethered and kind of unhinged legal theories as law. And then, you know, they go on to become judges and justices. And that's kind of how we end up in this situation. This has been going on for for 50 years, at least. They really hunkered down after Roe v. Wade in 1973 and started dedicating some some conservative firepower to, to this project. And they succeeded this year. It's not over by any stretch of the imagination, but they they got their big wish in June of this year. And it's all totally connected. And it's also true, um, you, know, you know, the Koch brothers supporting local a state attorneys general, state attorneys general have a lot of power to bring cases and bring constitutional challenges in front of the Supreme Court. The more conservative your your state attorney general is, the more likely they're going to sign on to a, a really unhinged Supreme Court argument about like health care or immigration or things like that, voting rights. So all of that's all connected and it got us to this point. And there's no there's nothing even close to this on the left. There's no coordinated effort to train up law students, put them in a pipeline to become progressive judges and then progressive Supreme Court justices. The, the amount of money that is spent to get conservative justices confirmed to the Supreme Court, tens of millions of dollars, nothing even close to that on the left. So we're, we're outmatched pretty significantly. I mean, I know that Biden has been, you know, appointing new judges at a break neck pace mm-hmm. right lots of progressive judges you know women women of color you know and that that used to be something that i you know looked forward to you know hearing about and it was something that was you know a silver lining but i don't know like hearing this it doesn't sound like we can catch up <laughs> and, you know in the short term i don't i don't know um for the lower court judges we can um so for district court judges and for appellate court judges he's been doing a phenomenal job um for the most part there have been a few really bad ones but for the most part his uh judicial selections have been exceptional um and he is confirming judges at a faster pace than his predecessors which is good because trump was able to confirm 200 federal judges and folks should know not every single case goes to the supreme court oftentimes if you do have a federal a case that is heard in federal court it will be decided at the lower level so it's important who those judges are too 
that they're interpreting the constitutional constitution fairly as opposed to interpreting it the way that Donald Trump would want them to interpret it. Um, so that's all very good. When it comes to the Supreme Court, it is true that unless we add seats to the Supreme Court, we are not getting out of this problem in the immediate future. So we're at a stage now where Democrats really need to let go of this idea that the Supreme Court is untouchable and can't be reformed and it would be out of bounds somehow to treat the judicial branch the same way we treat every other issue, which is when something isn't working, you fix it, you reform it. And the Supreme Court isn't just any institution. They're, they're a central pillar to the functioning of our democracy. And they are not working. It isn't working. It's broken. And not only uh, is it not working properly, but they are actively hindering our ability to participate in our own democracy. They are hostile to the American democratic project, little d democratic project. And so when that happens, you have to do something about it. And so this whole idea that they can't do anything about it because it'll undermine the public's trust in the Supreme Court is a joke. The Supreme Court's doing enough on their own to undermine the public's trust in them as an institution. Adding seats would do nothing but improve the court standing among the American people. So that's what needs to happen if we want to fix this problem now. Yeah. I mean, is that the hindrance, though? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, th this idea that the Supreme Court is kind of this untouchable institution, is that the hindrance or is it a lack of true congressional power, right? Because we, our majority is, is basically non-existent, right? I mean, uh, let's just say that everyone wanted to, everyone was willing to, to add seats to the Supreme Court, right? Everyone was willing, except Joe Manchin, <laughs> Cinema, right? I mean, okay, you tell me, what's a way out of this other than using congressional majorities to expand the Supreme Court, Right. I mean, there isn't one. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but there, there really isn't one. I know it's uh, stressful to hear that because I understand as well as anybody how dysfunctional Congress is too. I, I do. I understand that. Um, but there is not a situation. The only other option is to wait and see if there are retirements on the Supreme Court that would shift the balance of the court and hope that when that happens, we have control, Democrats have control of the White House and the Senate. Otherwise, it's, and what, what a gamble, you know, what a gamble. Yeah. Otherwise, we're never going to get a Supreme Court justice confirmed ever again if we have a Democratic president and a Republican-controlled Senate. Never going to happen. So, look, I know it's difficult because we have mansion and cinema problems. I'm also not suggesting that we're somehow going to pass a court expansion bill in the next month or even in the year 2022. I'm not suggesting that. I am a realist. I live on earth. I know how things are going. <laughs> okay. But here's what I do think. I think a couple things. One is that support for court expansion has grown exponentially just in the last like six months. And before last year, we didn't even have a bill pending in Congress about okay. court expansion. That in and of itself is a big, big deal. We have 60 over 60 co-sponsors. Uh, of the court expansion bill in the House. We have a lot of work to do on the Senate side because the Senate moves a lot slower. There's a lot more institutionalists on the Senate side. But what we can do is work this issue the same way we worked the filibuster because that used to be really, the thought of getting rid of it used to be really unpopular too. Now you can't run as a Democrat for Senate if you support keeping the filibuster. We did that. That's what we all did. That, was, that came with a lot of work. It took years 
five, three to five years, we got there. We got our caucus there on that issue, except for the two fakes. <laughs> we can do that with court expansion too, but we also, also need to send better Democrats to the Senate this year and beyond so that we can actually get it done. But we, it's going to take some work. No righteous fight comes easy. Otherwise we wouldn't have to do it. So it can happen and it can happen sooner rather than later, but it, it's not going to happen overnight. We didn't get into this problem overnight and we're not going to get out of it overnight either. There's this missing piece in this process. And I think, you know, for the upcoming midterms, most of the primaries are over. I didn't hear a lot of people talking about those primary races and whether we were electing people to run during the midterms who wanted to end the filibuster or who wanted to expand the court, right? We, we often don't think about that collectively when we're selecting people to run during the midterms. Like, honestly, I don't know how many people who are running for the Senate in, you know, in the fall support Supreme Court expansion, and that's a problem. So you end up with people like Manchin and Cinema in the Senate. Yeah, well, I think I still think that the gravity uh, of what the Supreme Court is capable of is still sinking in for a lot of people. Um, and I don't know that it fully did until the end of the term when they issued some of their worst decisions over the course of time. And by then, it is true that I think a lot of primaries had already been decided. But I think that the filibuster was a central question of primary candidates, especially on the Democratic side, uh, even moderate candidates like Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania came out pretty forcefully in favor of getting rid of the filibuster. That can be true for court expansion too. It just takes, it's going to take some time. And I think if there's any silver lining to any of this, it's that the court is helping shape public opinion against them. <laughs> they're behaving so badly that they're shaping public opinion against them. And I think, you know, recent polls have shown that, that support for court expansion is growing um, it might take some time for that to sort of pierce the bubble of our members of Congress, but they'll get there. They'll get there eventually. It's just going to take a lot of work on all of our parts to to make it happen. We don't have 50 years to turn this back around, though. No, we so don't. So we need to figure it out sooner rather than later. Yeah, like this year, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be the last. I mean, well, the thing is, is that, you know, that's where constituent pressure, activists and organizers pressuring or shaping the narrative about what's important, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. would, the filibuster wouldn't be where it is if it weren't for that pressure, I don't believe. I think that's right. Well, anyway, um, so <laughs> next time when you come on, can you have some answers for me? <laughs> Give me lots of answers. Can you have some good news? Anyway, yeah. anything. Next time I come on, I'm, I'm just going to say, I did it. We solved the problem. <laughs> Democracy <laughs> is saved. Thanks for having me on. And it'll be no problem. Well, <laughs> Megan Hatcher Mays, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you for your expertise. And, you know, let's let's do this, I guess. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Hang, just hang in there, everybody. Anybody listening. I know this is a difficult time, but we're better together. It, we're we're going to get through it together. I know how hard this is and it's hard to stay motivated, but we're not we're not done yet. Yeah, we must. Okay, thank you. Thank you.